The following message was given by Bob Coughlin at the 2017 Worship God Conference held in Louisville, Kentucky. The tension that exists between structure and spontaneity, or planning and improvisation. The question is, do we glorify God more by planning out the details of our meeting and having an order and a structure to them, or should we focus more with expectant faith that God is going to do something we didn't expect I mean, a lot of churches live in one or or the other of those two extremes, and what we want to talk about is how the gospel brings those together this morning. It's kind of like the relationship between classical music and jazz music, so we're going to go there for a moment. Classical music, for most people, among other things, represents structure. They, They know what's coming, and I have a little example of that. I'm going to move over to the piano. I don't see anyone at the soundboard, so it might be a problem. <laughs> there we go. Yes, this is, um, yeah, I think I'll stay over here. Yep, if we can just kind of move over here for a second. I was going to ask you to move the piano, and I thought, no, that is so too much work. Uh, so we're going to play a little bit of a classical piece. This is Chopin's Prelude in A Major. Okay, this is, this is how it goes. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, sorry. Does that sound familiar? Does anybody know this piece? Chopin probably never expected it to be playing an electronic instrument because they didn't have this kind of instrument when he was alive. That's so nice. Now, Chopin wrote those notes... 150 years ago, I forget exactly when he lived, long time ago, I just played the same thing he would play. Because it's got an order, it's got a structure. Everybody knows what's coming. That's what classical music is. When you download download a recording of Chopin's Etudes or Beethoven's Sonata or Concerto, you know in large degree what the music is going to sound like. You're not expecting something different because the notes are written down there. Right there, you know what's coming. Now, jazz, on the other hand, seems a little more unfettered, a little freer, a little more adventurous, a little more in the moment, kind of like this. If I was going to look at that same piece as more from a jazz perspective, it might be like this. Kind of like that. So 
same tune. I mean, you can tell, okay, yeah, we recognize it. But you didn't know what was coming. That's what jazz does. Of course, classical music, like jazz, appear in a, they both appear in a variety of forms, styles, and genre. But the differences between classical and jazz music are not as great as we might think. While classical notes are predetermined, the tempo, dynamics, rubato, tone, pedaling, and more aren't. So there's a lot of things about classical music, even though it's written down, you can't predict exactly how it's going to sound. So for a particular piece, I might have a, a particular artist version of that or rendition of that that I like better than others. It's a piece I love is Aaron Copeland's Appalachian Spring. I like certain versions of that more than others. And there has been a significant amount of improvisation in classical music throughout history. The Baroque period of music, which was when Bach was around, it utilized figured bass where they just gave you the bass note and you and told you kind of the structure of the chord above it, but you got to pick what notes you played. It would have been so cool. It's kind of like a fake book today where you just, you just get a chord or note and you just make it up as you go along. Uh, Bach and classical composers as well used cadenza, which you play the whole piece is written and then there'd be a little spot where you get to make it up. Now, sometimes those were figured out in advance, but other times it was just what, what you did at the moment. Bach was well known for being an improviser, as was Mozart. One biographer comments how after Mozart improvised for 20 minutes, he says, our feelings were transformed into pure enchantment. I guess so, <laughs> 20 minutes. Jazz is often characterized by its improvisatory nature. That's, that's what people know it for, that's what people expect. And ex but except for avant-garde forms of jazz or free forms, that improvisation takes place over an identifiable harmonic structure. And it has planned boundaries even within its freedom. So those distinctives and similarities between classical music and jazz music can help us dive into this topic of structure and spontaneity because both are valuable in leading others to glorify God and to build up the church. So what I wanna do is look at the relationship between structure and spontaneity as we think about our gathered meetings. Now this is not gonna be an ex expository sermon. Uh, let me tell you, what we're talking about is rooted in scripture, but we're not gonna go through one text because I, I couldn't find a text exactly that, that that spoke to all these. So we're gonna use a number of texts this morning. Um, we'll begin by looking to the place of order and structure in scripture. From the start, we see that creation has a structure. God created everything in six days in a specific order. He made light before food and food before the animals, that was wise. He didn't make the animals and say, well, where's the food? What's going on? There's an order. There's a progression to it. Everything has its proper place. And God says, it was good. Didn't know if you know this, but the book of Genesis unfolds in 10 different sections, each beginning with the words, these are the generations of. So even when the story was being written, there was an order and a structure to it. In Exodus chapters 25 through 40, God gives Moses instructions about how the tabernacle is to be built. And we see that it had a very defined structure drawn from the heavenly tabernacle. 
So he gave detailed instructions to the Israelites for the way the tabernacle and the furnishings and the garments were all to be made. And God intended Moses and the Israelites to follow those instructions. It wasn't random. And throughout scripture, we find that as God's people meet with him, it has some form or structure. Abraham built altars. Moses introduced festival days. Sabbath and reading God's covenant. David brought an emphasis on singing and joy and organized leadership. He organized the choirs to lead the musical worship at at the tabernacle and temple. The Bible itself reveals structure in a variety of ways. We have 66 books that weren't just put together randomly. There's a progression, there's a reason for why they are put together the the way they are. In the poetry of of Scripture, we have parallelism and acrostics. So in, verse, in Psalm 119, we have 176 verses. The first eight verses all begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And each of the following eight verses begin with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That is tight structure. And one of the most powerful examples in, in the Bible is in Lamentations. And this is going to help bring us into the... The, the reason for structure. Lamentations was written in response to the Babylonians overrunning and eventually destroying the city of Jerusalem in about 587 BC. Prophet Jeremiah might have written it, but scholars aren't sure. But whoever wrote it was wanting to point God's people to his presence, to his mercies, and to his rule in the midst of unimaginable tragedy. The temple had been destroyed. Sacrifices could no longer be offered for sins. They were experiencing the righteous judgment of God. Famine was so great that mothers were boiling their children and eating them. That's the scene. Now, in response to that scene, you would expect some emotional outburst of of anger and, and confusion and intercession. And Lamentations does contain those but it's all in a very structured way chapters one two and four are all acrostics meaning they all have 22 22 stanzas 22 lines all beginning with a successive letter of the hebrew alphabet chapter three has 66 stanzas and is a triple acrostic So each stanza has three lines beginning with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then the next stanza has three lines beginning with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so on for all 66 verses of chapter 3. Chapter 5 isn't an acrostic, but it has 22 stanzas. So here's the question. Why such tightly bound structure in the midst of such a horrifying time. Why? Well, years ago, I came across John Piper's thoughts about that in his book, A Godward Life, book two, and here's his take on it. This is what he says. Why? Why this form? Why do poets do these things to themselves? Surely, If there is any place for authentic, unencumbered spontaneity, it is here 
in the overflow of agony. Why bind the heart with such a severe discipline of poetic form? Why labor for weeks to give such shape to suffering? See the the question, see the tension? It is a testimony written on the heart that reality has contours. Being is one way and not another. There are hard, unbending facts. God said, I am who I am. Not what we feel him to be or wish him to be or make him to be. He simply is. And we must write the verse of our lives within the constraints of unbending ultimate fact. Therefore, laboring to look and look and look at what is really there until we feel what we are meant to feel and then to say what we have seen and felt in some exacting poetic form is a testimony to the truth that we are not God. I remember the first time I read that and my mind just kind of going off in explosions, all the implications of that. How as artists, we tend to think our goal is to just express what we feel. Not quite, especially for artists in the church. Our goal is to find out what is true and then to express it in a way that helps others know what is true. Because in the end, every knee will bow to absolute reality, to the truth that is in Jesus Christ alone. So just a sidebar, if you're a songwriter, you haven't fulfilled your duty simply by navel-gazing for a while, soul-searching for a while, and think, what am I feeling in there? And then just writing something about it. Our goal is to know God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ better, to see his handiwork, to see how he's thinking, what he's doing, how he's working, and to write about that. Now, it may be our response to that, but the end of it is not so that people might know what we're feeling. The end of it is so that people might know God and his ways and his thoughts and his justice and his mercy and his goodness and his kindness. That's our job as songwriters. That's our job as leaders. That's our job as Christians. That's what we are seeking to do. So one of the ways structure serves us is to remind us that we are not ultimately in control. We are not the final arbiters of our fate or determiners of reality. We don't get to say what's real. God does. And we want to line up with what he says is real because he is reality. He is everything there is to know. And structure reminds us that we're the creatures, not the creator. And that the most appropriate position in the universe for us is as humble receivers and responders, not arrogant rulers. You can also see God's concern for structure in the New Testament. We have verses like these. Paul tells the unpredictable 
an excitable Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. He's trying to bring a little guardrails to what they're doing. He explains to Timothy and no, Titus, rather, in Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He summarizes instructions for the gatherings of the Corinthian church by reminding them in 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And while the New Testament church seems to be familiar with spontaneity and freedom, we see signs of structure already beginning to take root in the pages of the New Testament. So we have in Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves to four things, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. See, four distinct aspects of what we do as Christians. Some people think 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 22 is referencing a format for a gathering. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Of course, the emphasis in the New Testament is not on a specific order or structure. We don't find that. We search for vain, for a liturgy in the New Testament that we can follow and say, okay, yeah, that, that's it. And you know why I think that is? Because if there was one, we'd all be thinking, if we do that, we're good. But that's not how we relate to God. We relate to God through faith. So the New Testament gives us principles and elements that should characterize our gatherings, the gospel and the word of God being primary. That being said, within the first 100, 150 years, the church began to have different structures brought to bear. They brought to bear on their meetings. They began to codify or establish certain patterns that were to be common for gatherings of Christians, and they included scripture readings, sermons, prayers, offering of bread and wine, singing, collections for the needy. So why, why is that? Why, why do we tend to bring structure to what we do? Well, it's because God has ordained that structure be beneficial to us. And these are some of the ways that structure benefits us. And I'm gonna include planning with this because all structures is part of some planning, whether it be one week ago or 200 years ago. It's, it's a, an attempt to bring order to what we do. Structure and planning enable us, enable us to be more intentional about our theological diet, musically and in preaching. So if we bring structure to our meeting, it will enable us, it'll help us be more intentional about what our people are getting. We want people to be built into Christ, his word, the gospel, his presence. We want them more moved by the truths we proclaim than the music and the melodies we sing. And structure, planned in advance, can help us accomplish those goals. So when we planted this church five years ago, not this church, but uh, uh, Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville, we had come from uh, a common experience, but been reading, been visiting different churches, and, and coming to a different place in terms of how we thought about the meeting. And what we all realized was, you know what, we could bring a little more structure to our meeting uh, and not just kind of wing it every Sunday, singing, sermon, pray, go home. 
So what we've done is we've, we've come up to, with an order, structure of a call to worship, beginning with the word of God. We sing a couple songs. We, we read another scripture, general, usually, to remind us that our, our singing is a response to God's revelation. It doesn't bring God down. It doesn't bring his presence. It's a response to God making himself known to us in Jesus Christ. And then we sing two or three more songs. And then we have a pastoral prayer. One of the interesting things was really, we really believed in prayer all our Christian lives, but we hardly ever prayed in our meetings. Structure helped make that a priority. Every week we have a pastor pray for five to seven minutes about needs in our country, needs in our world, needs in our church, uh, needs in, in the lives of individuals. And it's been one of the most significant things we do on a Sunday. Remember one person, remember one person saying to me, uh, yeah, I remember when I first came to your church, uh, you, you know, the singing stopped and, and pastor said, I'm going to pray and you know, I kind of put my head down, you know, thought, oh man, he's really praying. <laughs> like we're not like moving on to anything. Like we're just sitting right here. And it, it just, it, it was an unusual thing for them that we actually took time to pray. It wasn't a time for the musicians to get in place. It wasn't time to move the, the stage around. It was really just prayer. What a novel idea. Well, structure was the means that helped us get there. So we're going to put this as a piece in our meeting. After that, we welcome people, uh, announcements, receive an offering, and then a sermon, and then we'll either do a song or communion, um, and then a benediction. We have, have a benediction at the end. Here's been the effect of that. When you come to our meeting, and uh, you're welcome to come if you're staying over on Sunday, um, you will see a, an esteem given to the Word of God. So beginning and end, middle, sermon, prayer, we, we use the Word of God. The Word of God fuels our time together. It fills it. It governs it. It inspires it. And that's what we want to happen. But you know what? That doesn't just happen because we feel like it. It happens because we planned it. And we're putting it in there. I can't rely, I'll probably share this later, but I can't rely on my love for the Word of God to just pour over into everything. I want to make sure that it gets there because this is God's church we're talking about. This is the church of Jesus Christ. We've been called to shepherd them and care for them. How do we shepherd and care for them? By giving them the Word of God. That's what we want to do. So we put it in our structure. So that's what I mean. Structure and planning can help us be more intentional about our theological diet, musically and in preaching. There's another way benefit of structure. Structure and planning enable us and others to be more prepared to serve others with our contribution. One of the biblical aims of every meeting is that the members of church be built up, edified. We see this especially in 1 Corinthians 14, where five times Paul uses the word for edification, building up, as, as, a, as a purpose, as a goal of our gathering. Structure and planning can contribute to that goal. When we work out what's going to be done in advance, when people, when people are going to play and speak, it helps avoid conflicts and confusion. We're able to give more effective and timely contributions. So, so in our meetings, if, if someone's going to uh, share a testimony, something that God has done in their life, we have them write it out. 
Two pages, double space, that's, that's the goal. You know, we've received testimonies that are like 11 pages, single space. We're thinking that's not happening. Uh, it's, it's great stuff. It's really, it's all glorifying to God, but there are other parts to the meeting. Well, how do we do that? Do we just kind of wait and see what's going to happen with the testimony? No, we tell them in advance, hey, this is wonderful, but we're going to edit it down for you. And, you know, we want you to be good with it, but we just can't share all this. We're going to pick the, the, the highlights of what, what you share here. It enables people to be more prepared for the contribution they're going to make. So when I am uh, preparing for a Sunday, I will have a few places, typically, where I will say something. Most often, nine times out of ten, I'm writing those down. Now, I may not look at it while I'm speaking, but I want to have thought through it. Why? Well, because the whole church is gathered. (laughs) I want what they hear from me to to be helpful, to be edifying. So... For some of us, just that word alone, that's why you're hearing this message. Because you gotta give more time to what you say in front of people. We can tend to think, well, you know, just, it's all there, it's all there, it'll just come out, it'll be, it'll be amazing. You should ask some people how amazing it really is. <laughs> just, just, just a suggestion. <clears throat> Sincerity doesn't always equal effectiveness. That's what we need to believe. <laughs> Sincerity. Some people can be sincerely vacuous. Uh, just saying nothing at all. Just, but they're very sincere about it. We want it to have content as well. We want both. Another benefit. Structure and planning make it less likely we'll be led by emotion or experience. Uh, some churches and ministries are known for an eager pursuit of an engaging with God. And that's good. That's a good thing. We want to engage with God. We're not just a bunch of people meeting with each other. We are meeting with each other in the presence of God. God is with us. But we, we can't depend on that desire alone to, to, to guide us. It's, it's a good thing to, to pursue God. David says in, in Psalm 63, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thirsting for God is good. Expressing our desire for God is good. But because of a lack of planning or study or structure, experience and feelings become more important than faithfulness and orthodoxy. So the question we tend to ask is not, was this biblical, but did we feel God? We don't ask, did we gain a clearer picture of who God is for us in Christ, but did we feel the passion? Those are different questions. And what I'm arguing for this morning is both. We want both. There's another benefit of structure. Structure and planning enable us to engage more meaningfully in public. It's kind of contrary to what you might think. Knowing what's coming, praying over lyrics in advance, knowing your part well, they enable us to put technical matters in the background so we can actually focus on serving people and engaging with God. Hughes Oliphant, old says, 
when there are well-established procedures with which everyone is familiar, it makes it easier to concentrate on the content rather than the outward form. I like to think of meetings in terms of content and containers. It's, I find it helpful. The container is, is how we describe a portion of a meeting, the sermon, the singing, the prayer, the greeting. But all those containers have content, something that goes in them, that makes them unique, the scripture reading. It's not just a scripture reading, is it? It's the word of God speaking to us through the spirit of God, transforming hearts, speaking to the thoughts and intentions of the heart, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. That's what's happening. It's living and active. It's not just a scripture reading. Who's doing the scripture reading? Oh, yeah. No, this is an opportunity where we can hear God speak to us through his word. Well, as we plan in advance, we can concentrate on that. We can think about what's really happening. One final benefit of structure. Structure and planning enables us as large groups to maximize our time. The larger the crowd, the more important it is for us to make sure our time together is fruitful. That's why typically a small group will be less structured than a Sunday meeting. This conference would not be near as helpful if we decided to wing it from start to finish. Just had you all come and don't know who's speaking exactly. I hope someone can speak who's here. Anybody speak? You know, we, a lot, a lot of hours and planning went into this. Why? Because we care about you. Because we don't want you to waste your time. We want this time to be fruitful. Now, in that planning and structure, we've also asked and expect there to be spontaneous times. We want both. Because here's some of the drawbacks of structure. Let's look at those for a moment. Structure can feel safe. We don't need to actually interact with God as we execute our plan well. And if we think, we think if we've done that with confidence, we please God. You know, the Pharisees played it safe. They were confident in their own thoughts and traditions. But Jesus rebuked them by telling them they had voided the word of God through the traditions they had handed down. We don't want to do that. Structure can be idolized. Our plans can replace dependence on the Holy Spirit before or during the meeting. Our plans are good, but they're not God. CJ has said to me for years, the Holy Spirit helps us plan, but our plans are not the Holy Spirit. I found that really helpful. Another drawback, structure can't ensure everything will go right. Technology fails us. People call in sick. Beers get in the way of wireless mics. You just don't know how it's going to go. Structure doesn't mean we're doing the right things, another drawback. Structure doesn't mean we're doing the right things. We might plan an introduction that's just too long. We might work on an arrangement that, that doesn't work. We might work on comments or come up with comments that no one really understands. So just having a plan, having structure, doesn't mean we're doing the right things, which brings us to spontaneity and why 
God gives us these two wings of the airplane. Planning and structure and spontaneity. It's true that those who prepare to be spontaneous within structure will have more opportunities to glorify God. We want to bring both of them together. Spontaneity rarely happens in a vacuum. It's most often the result of previously thought out structure and order. It draws from the well we've already poured into. So if we know a lot of scripture, God's word will come out of us in unexpected moments. But we never get to the place where we think, well, yeah, I know enough. I don't need to plan anymore. But the more we have in us, the more ready we will be to contribute. If we're familiar with a lot of chords and songs, we'll be better prepared to know what song fits the occasion. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says in Tony Sargent's book, The Sacred Anointing. He's quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher, British preacher of the last century. The spirit generally uses a man's best preparation. It is not the spirit or preparation It is preparation plus the unction and the anointing and that which the Holy Spirit alone can apply. That can supply. That's what he uses, our preparation and our planning. So throughout Scripture, we see God commending spontaneity when the church gathers. And when I'm speaking of spontaneity, we're talking specifically about the work of the Holy Spirit as he makes God's presence known to us. So in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, we see that God gives the church spontaneous gifts and not just tongues and prophecy, but all kinds of gifts. Administration, helps, greeting, teaching, leadership. And these are the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So we read in 1 Corinthians 14, starting at verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, there's that order and structure, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. That two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. He's bringing order and structure to their spontaneity. But there is spontaneity. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. He goes on. So he's anticipating there will be spontaneous contributions to what's going on. In Acts 4, the early disciples are praying for God to move, even though they're very confident that he has already planned everything out. Acts 4, starting verse 29. They say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So we have this picture 
in the book of Acts of a church that is filled with life, spontaneous, exuberant life together, empowered by the Spirit of God as they are proclaiming Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord to the glory of the Father. They have meetings that go past midnight, thousands getting saved, miracles taking place. Now, we probably won't experience everything they experienced, most likely because of our place in redemptive history. God was doing a unique thing at that moment. We can't deny God's intention to interact meaningfully and powerfully with us in spontaneous ways. So this is going to push the comfort zones of some of us. I hope the last section did as well. But I want to look at some of the benefits of spontaneity. Why, Why spontaneity? What's the, what's the big deal? Well, spontaneity cultivates a dependence on God. It makes us less confident in the fact that we have planned something and more confident in the fact or the expectation that God will actually show up to care for his people. Another benefit, spontaneity gives us the freedom to respond to present needs and promptings. As I was teaching my pre-conference session yesterday, I began with, uh, well, I just, I just sensed as I started, you know, I think some of you are fatigued here. Anybody really battling fatigue? Anybody battling fatigue? And just a number of people. And I could have planned that, but I didn't. And so we just prayed for those people who were fatigued. Just little thoughts, little impressions. Could, it could, could include an unplanned comment, a scripture you might offer, a prayer. Smaller churches may be able to do this more frequently, but even in a large church, we can make plans for unplanned moments. Isn't that funny? We can make plans for unplanned moments. Whether your church is big or small, spontaneous contributions need to be evaluated by a pastor Valuing spontaneity doesn't negate the need for godly leadership. I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. Another benefit of spontaneity. Spontaneity can make us more aware of God's personal, timely care. Knowing that the president takes care of the people in his country is one thing. Receiving a handwritten note expressing that care is another thing. Let me say it like this. God will never demonstrate his love for us more fully than in giving his son to live on this earth, a perfect life of obedience, die in our place, a substitutionary death on the cross, and rise from the dead so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be justified in his eyes, adopted into his family, and his forevermore. This is how God shows his love for us. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's how we know what love is. There is no greater evidence of God's love. So if you don't feel loved by God, it might be that you're not going to the place where he showed it to us most clearly. Having said that, God's not a stingy God. He's not saying, well, if you don't see it there, I'm not going to show you in any other way. I'm not going to bless you in any way. Just going to have to get it right there at Calvary because that's where I showed it. Oh no, that's not our Father. Our Father looks for every opportunity that, to show us His love, His grace, His generosity, His goodness. We could all list 
a hundred things right now, if we thought about it, of way God, of ways God has shown his kindness to us. Well, that's what he's doing through spontaneous contributions. He's saying, you know what? I haven't forgotten you. I know you're here. Now we can go to his word and find that. I will, not, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And this is our authority. This is where we, where we base our lives. But God's a generous God. He's a gracious God. And he gives us spontaneous moments where we're reminded of who he really is. Another benefit of spontaneity, spontaneity can nurture faith that God will do more than we can ask or think through the power at work within us. I love this passage in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 and 25, where the unbeliever comes into the meeting. Has this ever happened in your church? Unbeliever comes into the meeting, he, he, he writes, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. I would love to see that happen more. <laughs> Once. I'd love to see an unbeliever come into our meeting and just at some point fall down and say, you know, God's really hurt. I've seen things like that, talking to people after a meeting, realizing, you know what, God's really with you. He's, he's really here. And uh, it's amazing. I know what you all have, but I want that. It's, it's, it's amazing. Well, that's a combination of things, but part of what God uses is the spontaneous contributions of people in the church. I've had numerous uh, spontaneous songs through the years. Felt the Lord has given me to share with the congregation. At times I'm singing them, thinking that is so lame. That is just so lame. What are you doing wasting people's time with this? And, and then I'll have someone come up, after me, come up to me afterwards and go, I just, I just encountered the love of God as you were singing that song. I want to say, really? I didn't feel it. <laughs> but it's not about our feelings. It's about trusting that God could do more than we ask or think through his power at work within us. And I'm not saying you should sing spontaneous songs. But I'm saying we should be listening. We should be listening. Because there are benefits to valuing spontaneity in our meetings. Now here's some of the drawbacks can minimize God's promised presence. This is probably the greatest drawback. God has promised to be with us when we do certain things, when we gather in his name, when the word of God is preached, when we share the Lord's Supper, when we pray together, when we sing his praise. And when we emphasize spontaneity, we aren't as grateful for for the fact that God has promised to be with us. We don't walk into a meeting with expectation that God's already here and that he's going to meet us because we're doing things that he loves us to do. Hear his word preached, sing his praise. And so we become overly dependent on feelings and experiences and spontaneous contributions and responses get longer and longer and longer because we're trying to make something happen rather than recognizing that someone can just get up and read the word of God and people can be smitten in their hearts. They can be undone. So, yes, the word of God is powerful. 
So we need to remember that. So those who emphasize spontaneity forget that. We can, we can forget that. There's another drawback. It can result in unintentional and unnecessary repetition and confusion. If we're always looking for the, the, the spontaneous thing. In the uh, probably 18th century, Isaac Watts wrote a book called A Guide to Prayer. And there, there were, he was talking to those who said prayer should be written or prayer shouldn't be written. There was this debate going on about what was kind of, kind of what we're talking about right now. Uh, structure versus spontaneity. He says this, I think this is such wise counsel. If we utterly neglect preparation, we shall be ready to fall into many difficulties. Sometimes we shall be constrained to make long and indecent stops in prayer, not knowing what to say next. Everybody's thinking the Spirit's working. You just don't know what in the world you're saying. You just kind of wait. Sometimes, I mean, don't we do that? I mean, I've seen guys do this. I've done it myself. You just kind of wait in this Holy Spirit moment and think, what in the world do I do next? I have no idea. I'm just hoping, I'm hoping everybody thinks like I'm just like waiting on the spirit and we're having a little time. And I'm clueless. I have no idea what's going on. So anyway, he says, um, sometimes when the mind is not regularly equipped, we run into a confused, incoherent, and impertinent rhapsody of words by which both God may be dishonored and the edification of ourselves and others spoiled. I just love the way they write. Oh, God, we thank you so much, God, that you're here and that you're with us. And, Lord, we're just so glad to be with you. Father, just thank you so much for dying on the cross for us. And we're just so great uh, to be with you. And thank you, Lord. It's just, it's just so amazing, Lord. Just thank you so much. And we just love you. And we love you. And we want to love you more. And, Lord, we want to worship you like never before. We want to sing your praise, Lord. We just want to give you glory. And thank you so much, Jesus, that, that you're reigning over everything. And we thank you, Lord, that you're with us. Amen. I mean, that's how prayers are sometimes. We feel like, like if we stop for any moment, you know, God's just going to leave. <laughs> kind of like the spirit is dependent on that string of sound, that stream of sound that's coming from our mouth. Another drawback, spontaneity. can be theologically shallow, inaccurate, or heretical. <laughs> this is kind of a subset of what I just shared. Um, you know, if you type in spontaneous songs on YouTube, you'll just get some good stuff. Um, here's one, get ready, ready, hold steady, steady, I'm about to do what's not expected. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we keep looking for the feeling, regardless of how we get there. We start depending on certain techniques or things we've done before that aren't necessarily rooted in Scripture, and they tend to get weirder. I saw one where <laughs> a woman's on stage, She's singing about the, the, the rain of God coming down. And I don't know these people. This is, not, this is not to disparage their character, but I would disparage this practice. Um, they're singing about the, the rain of God, R-A-I-N, which really we need some interpretation there. But then she starts singing, drip, drip, drop, little April showers. <laughs> and then another guy picks it up. He drip, drip, drop. And I'm thinking, this is insane. So that's one of the drawbacks of, of just depending too much on spontaneity. And then another drawback is it can usurp or challenge pastoral leadership and teaching. We begin to think that if it's spontaneous, it must be God. And that is so not true. But we feel it really strongly. And you know, 
I'm sure I've been this person, and I've certainly had people come up to me with this look in their eyes. <laughs> it's like, the Lord's told me something, and I got to share it. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this ain't looking good. <laughs> I don't know, whatever you're going to say, but it's not looking good. And what I want to say is, you know what? God's told you something right here. <laughs> it's right here. And spontaneity doesn't trump godly leadership. doesn't trump pastoring. So that's one of the drawbacks of, of over-depending on it. So I, I want to draw this to a closer. I've been trying to address two different groups this morning. One group is afraid of anything that smacks of hyper-spirituality or charismania. You've, you've heard about or had bad experience, and that's experiences, and that's caused you to be very wary of anyone who says that God is leading them. And that term can be overused for sure. It can be used wrongly. But when you hear it, just go, oh, I don't want that. You know. And I found people in this group, often they experience, they receive impressions from the Holy Spirit, but they just don't give them credit for it. It's, well, I thought this. It's just a good idea. Well, it's just, you know, good reasoning from Scripture. Well, maybe, maybe, but why not? Maybe it's the Holy Spirit. Maybe he's actually telling you, working in you. Now, that's got to be tested. It's not authoritative. The second group is always drawn to what is unfettered and unrestricted and exciting. They think that following through on a plan is less godly. It's not true. They think experience trumps doctrine and theology and pastoral leadership when it comes to what's reliable. It's because we go through often go through so much of our lives not being affected by what God has given us in his word. John Piper wrote a uh, blog post years ago. I think God spoke to me this morning. And uh, he starts out by you know, saying, wouldn't it be great if God would speak to us? And he says, he did. I read his word. He spoke to me. What if we're committed to pursuing a strong, healthy tension of all that is good about structure and order and planning and all that is good about spontaneity and the unexpected? What if we pursued both? Because that's what's needed to rightly and fully portray the gospel and its effects. The gospel is rooted in objective truth, a structure, if you will. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died as a substitute in our place, taking the wrath we deserve for our sins. He rose from the dead bodily. These are events that took place outside of us. They're historical and unchanging. But the Holy Spirit has an infinite variety of ways that he can apply those truths to our lives. And some of those are unexpected. We kind of get surprised by the reality of what's taken place. The Holy Spirit was poured out to exalt the crucified and risen Christ, and he seeks to do that both through the authoritative and sufficient word of God and his gifts. Are we gladly receiving and benefiting from both? That's the question. We are to depend ultimately on God's revealed word, not on spontaneous experiences. All we do, planned or spontaneous, falls under the authority and governance of God's word. We never want to pursue, pursue spontaneity in a way that would reflect God's character wrongly. 
God's word is utterly sufficient for all things pertaining to godliness, but his presence and his power aren't confined to it. God himself is the one who has every detail of history planned out and yet operates in time. Always surprising, always doing the unexpected, always interacting, always wanting to engage us to have our hearts. He wants our hearts. And if our relationship with God is simply plans and structures and duties, we don't know him like he wants to be known yet. He wants our hearts. Doctrine and theology are monumentally important. They help us understand what is true and real about God. But they're not everything there is to know about God because we'll be spending eternity getting to know our God and Father better. He is greater than we can imagine. His greatness is unsearchable. His wonders are more than we can tell. We worship a God who is near, who is active, and a God who breaks into our lives in planned, in unexpected ways. At the end of his commentary in 1 Corinthians 12, 14, showing the spirit, D.A. Carson concludes like this. We must desire to know more of God's presence in our lives and pray for a display of unleashed, reforming, revivifying power among us, dreading all steps that aim to domesticate God. But, Such prayer and hunger must always be tempered with joyful submission to the constraints of biblical discipline. Amen. May it be so. May we seek to be so prepared for our meetings that spontaneity becomes more a part of our practice, all so that we might see more of the greatness of Jesus Christ through the power of his Spirit for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you desire to meet with us, that you desire to be known, and that you have revealed yourself to us through your written word, the scriptures, and through the living word, Jesus Christ. And through your spirit, You move us, you make us aware, you enlighten us, you illumine us, illuminate our hearts. Father, we thank you that you give us what we could never earn, what we could never deserve, more than we can ask or think, by bringing us near you through Jesus Christ. We pray that we will be faithful to be planners, to be men and women of order and structure, and also desire to meet with you through that planning and structure in ways that we didn't expect. All for the glory of Jesus, our great Savior. In his name we pray, amen.
You've been listening to a message by Bob Coughlin given at the 2017 Worship God Conference held in Louisville, Kentucky. For more information on the conference, visit worshipgodconference.org.